Hi, and welcome to the third installment of the Tolkien Professor Collins Show via Skype. Now, I'm afraid I must apologize for the sound quality of this recording, which is not up to the normal standard. I recorded this session from my office at school, but I cunningly left my normal microphone at home that day, so I had to record on my laptop's built-in microphone. This is why there is at times some background noise, and at one point my voice fades out for a fraction of a second. Good times, but I think that the session still comes through reasonably well. Also, the first caller was a teacher who wanted to talk about my experience recording my class last semester, and it's possible that those of you who are not teachers might be less interested in that segment. If you want to jump ahead to the meteor Tolkien discussion, you'll want to move up to about the six-minute mark or so. And now, the first caller. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm great, thanks. I just wanted to let you know how much I've been enjoying your podcast. Oh, great, thanks very much. Fantastic. Wonderful, that's great to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions I had was, uh, I'm a teacher, I teach 7th uh-huh. grade geography, uh-huh. and I had some questions about how you do the microphones and, and just how you recorded your classroom. Well, it was a somewhat imperfect way to do it, but basically I had a cordless lapel mic, which would then just plug into my laptop, and I use a Mac, so I was using GarageBand, me too, but me too. sometimes <laughs> Audacity, to record. And then basically the microphone was sensitive enough and I was in a room whose acoustics were good enough that I could usually just pick up the students. The reason the students sound pretty blurred and sometimes hard to hear is that it's just basically picked up in the background on my lapel mic and then amplified. I was able to do that and then just go through and using Audacity amplify the students so that most of the time what they said could be heard. Sometimes if it was a really soft-spoken student from the back of the room, it was pretty hard to make out, but usually it was able to be done okay. I would have loved to be able to do a two-microphone setup where I had one microphone really just pointed towards the students and then one doing me, but in the end I couldn't really do that because I would have had to have a separate laptop if I had them both two different microphones plugged into my one laptop I might mm-hmm. have gotten feedback from my own microphone and everything and I thought that that was sure. probably more risky than trying to just do it the way I was doing it so that's pretty much where we ended up on it cool I just had a system installed in my classroom where there's a lapel mic for me and then there's a separate mic for students and so I'm looking forward to next year being able to record my classroom as much as possible and then be able to podcast it so students that are absent or students who want to study can use that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's great to have that kind of setup. And then would you be able to feed those to your own laptop or to the classroom computer? Or um, They're all fed in through my classroom computer. Okay, good. There's a separate box that takes all those feeds together. Yeah, great. It's from a company called Bradfield's. It's pretty awesome. That sounds optimal. That's great. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And the logistics of it is a little bit different. I'm used to the standard classroom, but when you have a microphone in the room, it kind of changes things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sure, you know what I'm talking about. No, I can only imagine how these dynamics might be different for a seventh grade situation. But for the college class, it was, I definitely felt it was kind of dampening at the beginning people were were kind of nervous there was this sense of i am speaking for all posterity every time i open my mouth and <laughs> i think that was a little bit nerve-wracking for some of them at first but i really think they loosened up with it as time went on and in fact i could even see kind of a change in their body language those who would raise their hand would tend to kind of lean forward and i could tell the sort of articulating a little more clearly like they could tell that was especially clear with those who actually went back and listened to the recordings afterwards. Not all of them did, but some of them did. And I think that I could tell 
who had by <laughs> the way that they, they were clearly seeing the issues in the recording. So that was cool. But in general, they were pretty enthusiastic about it. I still do a debate on the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. I love having the microphone recording it because there's this air of accountability. Yeah. What I'm about to do is important and people will hear it. So I have to be prepared. Yeah, I think that's something that's really beneficial. I mean, not only from a speaking and presenting perspective, but also from a writing perspective, too. Having my students posting on my website discussion board was also a really good thing. And it's something that I would like to do more, to do more incorporating discussion boards and blogs and mm -hmm. things in, in my classes for exactly that reason. When students, whether it's something that they're writing or something that they're just sort of working on and presenting, to have this sense, even if it's an illusion, but still to have this sense of an external audience and other people out there who may actually hear or read what they're doing, I think definitely has a really positive impact. Yeah. And it's amazing to see what people are doing with technology and your podcast in general. It's just amazing to see the audience that you're capable of reaching and just the level of interactivity. All of a sudden, I'm like grabbing all my token books and reading them again. It's just been really exciting. It's been really exciting for me, too. I didn't really know what to expect when I was starting working on it. And I have been myself kind of surprised at the number of people who have been listening. And it's... Uh, the whole thing basically started with a hypothesis, which was that there are a lot of people out there who would be interested in being involved in a more serious intellectual discussion of Tolkien's books. And that was my theory going in, but I was sort of more right than I thought, I think. And it has been really neat, and I have really enjoyed the way that it's been kind of expanding and doing more stuff like this, just interacting with people, having the discussion sections, and really involving people in a broader conversation. I feel like the whole past year I've been doing this, I've been sort of making things up as I go along, and I'm kind of continuing to do that and see about different ways and media through which this could be facilitated. I've even looked into the possibility of doing something through Second Life and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe actually setting up something like a sort of virtual Tolkien professor classroom in Second Life where there could be regular discussions or something like that. Just exploring and experimenting and stuff, so. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm excited because I finally got my wife to start to read Lord of the Rings. Oh, cool. And, uh, she's, um, my wife's pregnant and she's been kind of sick. So I had this captive audience <laughs> <laughs> that I can figure out ways to entertain her. And I'm like, why don't we read my favorite book? So we started reading Lord of the Rings and it's great to read out loud and then to watch her experience it for the first time has been so cool. That's a really wonderful experience, reading aloud, and um, I'm very glad to hear that. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to get to share it with someone else for the first time. I've been reading The Hobbit to my seven-year-old son for the first time over the last month or so, and that's been really cool. He was resistant for a while to reading it, but he's really excited about it now, and that's just been tremendous fun. So, uh, yeah, it's a really great thing. Yeah. <laughs> One of the parts that really kind of struck me was her reaction to the minds of Moria. Ah, she was so on edge through the uh -huh. whole thing. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, as I'm reading Tolkien, I guess I just, I'm doing different things. I'm thinking about how things are connecting and the Tolkien world in general. Yeah. Whereas my wife is, is just sitting there listening to the drama. Yeah, no, it's really wonderful to be connected again with that first experience of reading it. And that's something I've been reminded of, too, with my son, you know, who doesn't know what's going to happen next, you know, and is in genuine suspense. That's a really wonderful kind of moment, because, of course, once you know them 
really well and have read them many times, you just can't recapture that same kind of experience. I mean, there are many passages which can still move you, you know, no matter how many times you read it, but you can't mm-hmm. ever recover that same sense of the drama unfolding. So, yeah, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm going to get going. It was a pleasure talking to you. Great. Well, thanks for calling. And I'll continue to enjoy the uh, podcast. And if you're on Skype again, I'll give you a call. Great. Great. Hello? Hello. Um, hi, my name is Ryan Drew from Prince Edward Island, Canada. Oh. I'm in grade I'm in grade seven, and me and my dad are a big fan of your podcasts. Cool, cool, great. Um, well, I had a question. I had emailed you a while ago mm-hmm. about a question about um, the three wizards, Radagast, Alatar, and Palando. Yes. And I was just wondering what information you had on them and what happened to them. Right. Well, there is. Not very much information about them, and especially the two blue wizards. Those are stories that Tolkien really never wrote. He thought about them a little bit, but it's clear... Well, the only stuff he ever wrote down about them is not very clear, but the one thing that is clear from them is that he didn't have a very clearly worked out story. There are some places where he talks about the Blue Wizards where he basically suggests that they were failures, even that they went bad. Not exactly the same way that Saruman did, but kind of yeah, like he did. Yeah, what I read is they went into the East. Yes. And yeah. I read that their success was unknown. Right. It could have been a success. It may not have been. Nah, yeah. That's... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the two names that you cited, those two names are the most optimistic things. In one of his other writings, he gave them those two names, and the names mean very optimistic things, like, yes, there it is. The other name that he gives to them are Morinitar and Romestamo, which translate to Darkness Slayer and East Helper. And so now that sounds really very positive, you know, that clearly they accomplished something. And in that same passage, he says, their task was to circumvent Sauron, to bring help to the few tribes of men that had rebelled from Melkor worship, to stir up rebellion. And here he's speculating that basically if it hadn't been for them, then there would have been many, many, many more people coming from the East to help Sauron in the final wars. Yes, it may have helped overall. Right. But that passage is sort of from basically sort of a scrawled note that he wrote late in his life earlier on. What book are you getting that from? uh, That's from volume 12 of the History of Middle-earth, the Peoples of Middle-earth. And that's from the section which Christopher Tolkien has titled Last Writings. I mean, so it's at the very, very end of Tolkien's life. Things that he had written earlier, he actually suggested exactly the opposite, that they had gone bad and ended up doing harm and became the center of witchcraft cults and stuff. Yeah, it may have. Yeah, got them too. So, I mean, the one thing that's always really hard with Tolkien stuff, especially the stuff which is outside of the canon, I mean, stuff that he doesn't explain in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and things, is that you always have to take into account that his own thoughts on many of these things were pretty fluid, and his ideas on on these things change wildly over the course of his life. He has different ideas about them and everything. And the Blue Wizards are clearly a prime example. He never told their story, he never really intended fully to tell their story, and clearly had different ideas here and there about how they might fit in. So it's hard to be really definitive and say, like, this is the true story of the Blue Wizards, because he never really wrote the true story of the Blue Wizards. But it is kind of fun, that thing that he wrote at the very end of his life, to suggest that they had some to-the-west unknown and yet heroic role in helping to thwart Sauron at the end. Yeah. Now, as far as Radagast, in the end, he calls Radagast ultimately mm-hmm. a failure. Not a failure in the same way that Saruman was, but 
Radagast becomes a different kind of cautionary tale that basically the job of the wizards in general, like what the wizards came to Middle-earth to do, was mm-hmm. yeah, to go around and help in any way that they can with the fight against Sauron and to be the way that Gandalf famously describes himself as a steward in his conversation with Denethor in The Return of the King. That's sort of the clearest statement of what the wizards are there to do that we get. And Gandalf is the only one that we know of for sure who really remains true to that calling. Saruman obviously goes, well, yeah, it was, goes it wrong. It was Galadriel who wanted Gandalf to become the like the head of the White Council, wasn't it? Right, yes, it was. Yeah. Which is why Saruman didn't like her very much. But yeah. or One of the reasons. But Radagast didn't go bad in the way that Saruman did. I mean, he never... You know, there's even that moment in the Council of Elrond where Gandalf openly scoffs at the idea of Radagast being corrupted, that Saruman would have been oh. wasting his time to yeah, try to corrupt the had, honest Radagast he, to treachery. He had talked to Radagast. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he had ridden on a horse and he found Radagast. Right, Radagast yeah. had given emergent news, actually helping Soriman. Right, right. And yeah, he was kind of not really... He was helping both sides at some point there, wasn't he? Yeah, though so, he didn't realize that he was helping the bad guys yeah. when he was helping Saruman. I mean, Saruman and deceived him. He was he was resulting in sending Y here to rescue Gandalf. Right, exactly. He was clearly helping sort of however he could. But basically what Tolkien suggests about him is that he isn't someone who is corrupted by evil desires and ambitions in the way that Saruman was, but basically that he lost focus. Basically, he, he should have been doing more than he was. He... Yeah was still a good guy. He was still honest. Was He helped how he could, but he could and should have done more. He was the friend of birds and beasts, and that's apparently a good thing. But at the same time, Tolkien suggests, and here I'm thinking of his essay on the Astari that is in Unfinished Tales, he suggests that basically still, at the end of the day, Radagast basically, well, he fails, or at least you could say he doesn't really succeed in what he's trying to do because he loses focus. He ends up spending so much time just with the good things in Middle-earth. It's great to be friends of birds and beasts, but don't lose sight of the main goal. I mean, again, Gandalf's articulation of it is really perfect, you know, that he values everything that grows and is good and has life in Middle-earth and he will fight for and defend them, but he doesn't just get wrapped up in them. He is still working for their sake. And so we know that Gandalf, I mean, think also of the song that Frodo sings, the song of lament for Gandalf's death that he sings in Lothlorien. He talks about Gandalf's friendship with birds and beasts and how he knows all their secret languages and things. And yet Gandalf doesn't just settle down and become a hermit. He doesn't let his love for and attachment to and respect for the things of Middle-earth distract him from his overall mission. And basically, though we don't get all that much information about Radagast, the implication is that Radagast does basically let that happen. Why wasn't Radagast at the battle? Why wasn't Radagast involved? He was actually invited to the um, Council of Elrond, wasn't he? And when they sent messengers up, he was not there. Yeah, the messengers did stop by, and they seemed to want to at least kind of check in with him. And Where was it that he was residing? Cross Goble is the name of his place, which is around Mirkwood, but there's no real record of where he was or where he went, and we never really hear anything of him again. But again, yeah. it's mostly his absence that is kind of most damning of him. He shouldn't have been absent. And it's again, it's not clear that he did nothing and that he accomplished nothing, but Tolkien does suggest that in the end, he really did not fulfill his job. Um, Could he have gone into Mirkwood? Like, because I know that there 
with bad things in Mirkwood. Could yeah. he have gotten in trouble there? There certainly was plenty of opportunity for him to be more involved, but it's not clear that he was more involved. I don't know if at the end of Tolkien's life he would have come back and wanted to write in more Radagast stuff. He did that on several occasions, sort of going back and rethinking one of his characters, which was kind of underdeveloped or something, and he he someday have done that with Radagast, perhaps. But yeah. uh, um, but really, we still just in the end don't know too much about him. You know, in some ways, you can almost say that we know less about Radagast than even the Blue Wizards, even though we actually meet him indirectly through Gandalf's story in the narrative of The Lord of the Rings. And yet in the end, we sort of know less about what he was doing or even trying to accomplish or to judge. But there is that one passage where he suggests that Radagast, though not evil, really had fallen short. Yeah. So okay. that's pretty much all we know about them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I am continuing to listen to your podcast. Great. Well, my dad, we get pretty excited when there's a new one. <laughs> Good. So you'll Good. be posting well, this one? Yeah. Will you be posting? Yeah, I will be. Uh, probably next week or soon thereafter is my hope. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Good. No problem. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye. This is Torch Falkhammer. Great, good to hear from you. Yeah, nice to get through here. I was listening to the Q&A earlier today. Uh-huh. And you were discussing this Goblin Orc yes. thing. And I was just thinking of a passage where some of the Urukai from Isengard are actually described as four Goblin soldiers of greater stature. Right, right. That is a really good yep. point. Is that the narrator speaking there? Yeah, that's yeah. when they come upon Aragorn. Right. You know, there, there were four goblin soldiers of greater stature, swart, slant-eyed, with thick legs and large hands. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the fact that it sort of specifies of larger stature, it seems fairly clear, especially in The Lord of the Rings, that the two words are really pretty much interchangeable. And I mean, as I suggested in the Q&A discussion... I totally sympathize with and even kind of like the effort that the films made to differentiate and to make discreetly, <laughs> measurably different races. I think that's kind of a noble <laughs> undertaking, but I do think it kind of misses the way it's being used in the book. They're really just not that different. And I even occasionally want to believe that there is a different kind of connotation for some of the different speakers in the books, that they'll use the word goblin instead of orc with a particular kind of implication or slant. Like Sam, for instance, seems to use the word goblin sort of slightingly or something at times. But in the end, I don't even think that I feel firm enough about the consistency of that pattern to be able to say that. There do seem to be some people who use that word more than others, like the hobbits and the Rohirrim, I would say. But yeah, I think there's really no obvious pattern there. Yeah, I think he wanted to make a difference also as he says in the foreword to the Hobbit second edition or something, that 
goblins were the smaller or, or right. the orcs were the larger, but he never carried it through. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's clearly that. how he introduces it in The Hobbit. You know, that one use of the word orc in The Hobbit is of big goblins. So, yeah, I agree. There doesn't seem to be any really clear sense by which, based on the usages that he actually did, that you could get a whole crowd of them in one place and say, okay, the goblins are over there and the orcs are over there. The passage that you point to about the uruk I agree with you, is a particularly good one. In the discussion, I was thinking of the passage with Marion Pippin and Rohan, because if anywhere you're going to use it, it would be there, right? Because you've got the three clearly different subspecies of orcs. So if ever there were a golden opportunity to say that, you know, okay, those Misty Mountain ones, they were goblins, but the Uruks from Mordor, they're orcs, that would be the place. But it doesn't happen. Actually, the Uruks from Mordor are Urukai as well as Urukai from Isengard. I mean, Urukai is basically just black speech for orc folk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the Isengarders are clearly different. I mean, they're physically a little bit different, and they've got the different relationship with the sun and everything. But yeah, as is so common with Tolkien's names based on his other languages, the translation of the name in the other language is very simple. (laughs) As you say, just as in Michael Drought's lecture that he gave here that I put on the podcast, how he goes through and shows that in Anglo-Saxon, the name of all of the kings of Rohan, almost all of them means king, you know. It's excellent. Yeah, it's the kind of thing Tolkien does a lot. But yeah, I think that trying to make a distinction doesn't stand up. And again, saying that is no criticism of the films. For the film's usages, it makes a lot of sense for them because they are focusing, of course, on trying to make a clear visual distinction among them. And they put a lot of thought clearly into the way that different species of orcs have the styles of their armor would be different and their physiology would be different. And for them to kind of attach vocabulary to the visual distinctions that they're making in their representation makes perfect sense. And I think it was a good idea, but it's really just not how the words work in the books as much as many people would want it to work that way. I don't know how much time got. The thing I I wanted to talk about originally was Bilbo's lock in The Hobbit, because it seems to me that in the first part of the book, until Smork's death, his lock isn't really being described in a way that, to me at least, is very easy as a Dane to see, and and it's very tempting to see Norse influences. Uh But the description of Bilbo's lock until, actually, Smork's death is very reminiscent to me about of uh, the, the the old Norse view of luck and the luck people and, and luck as a possession, something that you could share with others. Yeah, yeah. The clearest passage that way is the moment at the end of Flies and Spiders, right after he reveals the possession of the ring to the dwarves, and the narrator says that they see that he has some wits as well as a lot of luck and a magic ring. Yeah. And these are all three very useful possessions. So the way that luck is characterized as a possession of Bilbo's, it's done very explicitly there. And even the way that Bilbo himself talks about it afterwards, when he says things like, oh, you know, I trust my luck more than I used to do in the old days. Yeah, Yeah, but the one thing I would say about that is I think it's kind of qualified by what I would call the bigger picture luck issues in The Hobbit, or perhaps fortune. That is, the things which are not Bilbo-specific, but are involved more in the plot as a whole, or in sort of the quest 
more broadly speaking. And I'm talking about things like the way in which the narrator continually draws attention to how all of the bad things that happen to them end up being not only okay, but uniquely beneficial. They're going over the pass of the Misty Mountains, and they get captured by the goblins and end up coming out way further north than they were going to. But it turns out that the path they were originally planning on would have done them no good and would have led them into trouble. So it turned out to be a good thing that they got sidetracked. And then Bjorn says, oh, this is the only way through Mirkwood. Whatever you do, don't leave the path. It'll be catastrophic to leave the path. And of course it kind of is, but then they do leave the path and end up, of course, as it turns out, finding the only way, the, the path which they weren't supposed to leave would have led them into trouble, and the river which they ended up going by this string of what appears to be misfortune and coincidences leads them to the only viable road through Mirkwood to the lake. So that kind of thing, which is not, I mean, of course, Bilbo's involved, but those things, that's not just a question of lucky things happening to Bilbo. You know, Bilbo's luck either in the sense of something like finding the ring in the dark or even something like guessing by luck the right direction to go to the spider's nests when he wakes up and is looking for the dwarves. Those things are clearly Bilbo himself just having a significant dose of luck. But those larger things, I would also include here, for instance, the whole party stumbling into the glade where the wolves and goblins happen to be meeting and so therefore by their presence there that night derailing the attack on the human kingdom and all of the kind of huge snowballing political implications that that one chance event had. Those things seem to be well beyond Bilbo's personal luck. And I think the way that those things are continually happening, or even if you go back to the luck of finding Glamdring and Orcrist in the Troll's Cave, you know, you have all of these big picture chances and coincidences happening. And so I think what happens at the end, post-death of Smaug, Bilbo's own personal luck gets, especially, of course, at the very end, contextualized in the larger providential shape of the story as a whole. Um, So I don't disagree with you. I think that Bilbo's luck itself is discussed like that. But I don't think he is simply applying that kind of a Norse idea. I think he's sort of integrating it, basically. And in the end, contextualizing it. The final conversation that Bilbo and Gandalf have on the last page serves at least in part to help Bilbo himself understand things better and contextualize things more fully. These things weren't just arranged for his benefit. It's not really all about him and his own personal luck. He was just one small piece on the board after all. When you read the sagas, you get this impression that when you have a party going out, it is a good thing to have a luck person with them. Right. Because that luck gets sort of distributed. Everybody gets a part of it. Yeah. It benefits the whole party. And in that sense, my impression when first reading The Hobbit, at least, was that, okay, this is actually Bilbo's luck helping everybody. Right. And that's clearly operating in places like The Finding of the Ring, of course. But I think even back to one of the other examples I gave, the finding of the swords from Gondolin in the Trolls' Cave... Well, that finding, of course, was facilitated by Bilbo's own personal luck in happening to find the key, which happened to fall out of the troll's pocket before he turned to stone. So had it not been for Bilbo's own personal luck there, they would have never been able to get into the troll's cave. So that's sort of one example of that. And also, of course, the way that the dwarves are able to be freed from the elf prison, that very pointed line, luck of an unusual kind, was with Bilbo that night. And obviously all of the dwarves are heavily not only banking on, but in fact benefiting from Bilbo's luck. And yet, I'm not sure I would go so far as to include all of those things which help to shape and form 
the destiny and political structure of a whole region. To essentially characterize those as basically like side effects of Bilbo's luck seems to be a bit much. And that's why I think that the better way to see it is in a kind of contextualizing of it. Again, not that I disagree at all about Bilbo's own personal luck. That does seem to be very much the spirit of it. And I think in part... One of the things that's neat about it, and that's neat especially about the end of The Hobbit and that conversation with Gandalf, is that Tolkien sort of allows the readers of The Hobbit to have the same experience that Bilbo's having. That is, he doesn't think of himself as anything very special at the beginning, and the readers don't necessarily see that he's anything special at the beginning. And then as time goes on, it sort of looks more and more like he is special. Gosh, he is lucky. Maybe he is this specially lucky person, and everything is working out well. And then at the end, Tolkien sort of through that conversation with Gandalf, gently pushing readers to say, okay, wait, maybe this is not just about Bilbo. There is this larger plan behind it. So I think it's really neat the way that he does that. Uh, yeah, I agree that in particular these larger political upheavals that doesn't really fit with the North model of luck. Yeah, yeah. It is a really good reminder, and I'm really glad that you brought it up. I don't talk about the Norse stuff too much in my podcast, just mostly because I know that a lot of people haven't read it, and it's going to be of limited usefulness for me to refer to it when a lot of people don't know it, but I'm really glad that you brought it up, because I would really like to encourage people to read more about it. You really do get a much richer appreciation of Tolkien's books from knowing the Norse things. It is very tempting, perhaps a bit too tempting, um, as a Dane, to see this this stuff. And, and I'm sure sometimes I go too far and say, well, surely this is, but, but it isn't necessarily. Yeah, not always. Yeah. And of course, sometimes even being right about the connections can be dangerous. It's something that I see a lot when you do recognize something. Like, for instance, if you've read the Kalevala, and then you read the Silmarillion, and, you know, you're reading Turin Turambar and saying, oh, it's Kulervo, it's Kulervo. Well, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. there's always this temptation to feel like, I've solved it. Now I've figured it out. You know, Turin is Kulervo. Great. But just to make the connection is only the first step. To be able to see, you know, how is he interacting with the story? How do these two stories go together? I see this even in Tolkien scholarship, too. It's so much fun to find the analogs and find the sources and sort of think about that and guess about that. But the really rewarding thing to do is then, having done that, now to really build on that, you know, and to be thinking about how does it really help us yeah. to understand his story more? You know, when you sort of take... yeah. Precisely. Uh, you know, Bilbo yeah. and put him next to some of those other Norse characters and do some comparison and contrast and really sort of begin to see what is the emphasis that Tolkien is laying there and how can it really help us to understand Bilbo's story. That's, I think, where the real action is. And I think yeah. so. I mean, it's not at all that I think it's inappropriate. I just think it tends to be talked about too little, really, rather than too much. Yeah, I totally agree. When I read criticism, the metric I'm trying to apply is basically, does this help my appreciation of the story? Yeah. More than anything else. I mean, it can be very interesting, but if it doesn't really help me appreciate the story better in the end, what's the point? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I often feel like, okay, so, you know, what's the conclusion? You know, where do we go yeah. with it? What do we do? How does it help? I mean, I, I think that that is a really good way to think about things. And, you know, sometimes even if an individual critic is not drawing a conclusion, him or herself, you know, nevertheless, it still can be used as interesting raw material to think about yourself as a reader. Um, but yeah, it's the thing that I find most frustrating when I read Tolkien scholarship is that tendency, that temptation to kind of stop short of really applying it to analysis and really making use of it. It is so tempting just to sort of point out a connection and then feel like something 
great has been accomplished by establishing a connection, and I think that's really only the first step. But, you know, as long as we go on to continue to further steps, it can still be interesting, so. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks very much. Talk to you later. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hi, Laura. Sorry I missed your call before. Oh, thanks for uh, calling back. No problem. Uh, I had a question for you. All right. Um, I've read Lord of the Rings many times, but I'm rereading now, and I'm in Return of the King. And I was just wondering what you thought about Frodo's motivation as he's going into Mordor. It seems we're getting the story more and more from Sam's perspective, and Frodo's almost acting like an automaton. He keeps repeatedly saying, you know, I don't have any hope. I've given in to despair. So what is it that keeps him going? Is it Sam being there pushing him? Is he just a robot, basically, until he gets there? Well, I think part of what is happening with Frodo, as far as we can tell, is that he is more and more completely consumed with internal stimuli. And this is thinking of it from just a storytelling perspective. I think that the way that Tolkien tells the story there is really pretty remarkable. There are a lot of writers who would have, I think, given in to the temptation to just give us a lot of Frodo's thoughts and what the ring is doing in his mind and his own kind of internal oh, yeah. monologues resisting it, and which I think could have gotten pretty tiresome really fast. And instead, just by describing him from the outside and the few details that we get, like, for instance, the mm-hmm. way that Sam will observe his hand creeping towards the ring and then being pushed away, and that really powerful moment when he asks Sam to hold his hand because he can't stop it anymore. What that shows us of the position right then of his will, where on the one hand his will is set against it, and yet he knows his will can't resist. Like the way that he's sort of separate from his own hand there. It is taking over me, and I want to resist it, but I know that I don't have the strength anymore to keep fighting. Yeah, he's falling further and further. What I think of it is probably Sam wrote those chapters... In the book, you think about kind of the external story, how Tolkien frames the whole thing. I wonder if even Frodo remembered any of this after the fact, and maybe we get it from Sam's perspective more because he's actually writing it at this point. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I was just thinking about that, too. And I think you could see it either way. That is, certainly, it's easy to imagine Frodo after the fact Mm -hmm. saying, look, I barely remember that part, and I don't want to remember the bits that I do remember, so just you write this part, and therefore not seeing inside his head for that reason. But at the same time, one can also imagine Frodo writing that and saying, look, not only do I not want to revisit it, I don't want to darken other people's thoughts and hearts by giving the details of what was going through my mind there. Instead, when I'm retelling the story, what I want to emphasize is to sort of recognize what was going on with me, but I want to focus on Sam. (laughs) And in fact, the extent to which Sam becomes, you know, very clearly and very explicitly heroic during that whole section would actually, I think, tend to argue against Sam being the author of it. But, I mean, you know, of course... Sam wouldn't say those things about himself. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. But, I mean, of course, we... Mm -hmm. We can't really know, but I do think it is an interesting sort of question to ask and to kind of, I think, 
opens it up a little bit. But as I say, I do think it's interesting the way that he describes it. It's clear to see, at least to some extent, what's going on with his will and in his mind. And I think, therefore, the kind of robotic Sam tells him to go on and then Sam says it's time to stop and Frodo just pitches over the way in which he's just sort of compliant and clearly has no other strength or attention to give to anything else, I think reflects not his being kind of really like an automaton, but just totally consumed by what's going on inside. He's got no attention even to spare for external things. So, is yeah, that because I, of his internal struggle, or is the ring just taking him over as it gets closer and closer to Mount Doom? He's having to fight the influence of the ring more and more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's more about his being just consumed with what's going on. This internal struggle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when he gets to Mount Doom, it's almost like he's thought about this a lot, though. He gets there, and then all of a sudden he knows exactly what he's going to do, as if he's sort of rehearsed it in his mind, but maybe put off making the decision until the last minute. That is an interesting way to think about it, that the speech that he gives at the Cracks of Doom, but I do not now choose to do what I came here to do. Yeah, it sounds a little premeditated. Yeah, yeah. No, I I definitely agree that it has that air. But at the same time, the thing that I think that we can hear there, during my class this past semester, on a few occasions I talked about what I call the ring-induced monologue, right? You know, when the person has this chain of thought usually about claiming the ring. Most classically, Boromir's speech to Frodo when he's trying to get the ring. And of course, we get it with Gollum and with Sam at the very beginning of The Return of the King when he's thinking about turning Mm -hmm. Gorgoroth into a garden and stuff. And more than anything else, that seems to be what that speech kind of sounds like. It seems like what we get there is not necessarily something that he was planning exactly, but this is the speech that he's been trying not to give, and that just as before there was this separation between his will and his hand, now the voice is just coming out. One of the really evocative details, I think, at the Cracks of Doom is when Frodo gives the first of his two dramatic speeches. The second one is the, I do not now choose to do what I came here to do speech. The first one is the one to Gollum, you know, when he throws Gollum down and says, you cannot slay or betray me now, and, and threatens that, you know, if he ever touches him again, he'll be cast into the Cracks of doom and the way that Tolkien describes this voice Sam sees this image of Frodo and sees the wheel of fire on his breast and the voice comes out of the wheel of fire and I've heard some people take that to say oh I see the ring is actually talking here it's not Frodo talking at all this is the ring talking and I, I don't think exactly so I mean I think that that's still Frodo's voice but what is being emphasized here is that essentially it is the ring speaking it's speaking through Frodo it is gaining control of his will he has resisted it to the very end but he can't I was about to yeah, say physically know. can't but it's not really about physical he can't resist it anymore and it overcomes him so i think a more accurate way to describe it would be that he is finally now giving voice to what he has resisted giving voice to but i don't doubt that that speech has been going through his head for days and he's been keeping himself from saying it so it's frodo but just amplified with the the power that comes from the ring yeah Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he clearly has power in that moment. I mean, that's sort of the significance of that little vision that Sam has, you know, that seeing Frodo with other sight and seeing him kind of transformed. And he does have power. It's pretty clear that when he claims the ring for his own, he's not actually going to be able to overthrow Sauron with it. But I don't think that 
Frodo is a totally insignificant figure at that moment. I mean, he clearly does have power. He has been growing in stature, and when he claims the ring, there are implications that if Galadriel or Gandalf or Aragorn claimed the ring, that they were themselves powerful enough to use it to overthrow Sauron. I don't think Frodo could do that, but yet it's not quite so much of a no-brainer as it would have been two books yeah. ago. <laughs> yep. Well, it's it's definitely gripping storytelling. I I never really look forward to reading that part, but I can't put down when I start reading it. Just... Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree that first couple chapters of book six, the actual journey through Mordor, is often really painful. I mean, there are those moments in it that are so powerful that I really look forward to them. But thinking of it from a storytelling perspective, I think he walks a very fine line there between dwelling on it just enough to mm-hmm. give, to convey the impression of how torturous that journey was without going so far as to make it actually torturous to read. (laughs) And he's kind of near the line at times. Yeah, it's pretty short actually when you look at... Yeah, but I guess that I think there are other fantasy authors that I can imagine not succeeding in walking that line (laughs) (laughs) in one way or another. There are so many ways in which Tolkien, just as a writer, just as a storyteller, is really underrated. I mean, what most people rightly love about Tolkien and recognize about Tolkien is his sub-creation, how wonderful and how detailed his world is and how easy it is to get lost in it. And I think that many people even who love and defend Tolkien are kind of too quick to concede from the beginning, I mean, from the first release of the books, there were people who, who were saying, oh, you know, his writing style is, is not good at all, and, and the books, although they're kind of interesting in some ways, are not really well written and are not really excellent literary fiction. And I think that some, even some Tolkien defenders are too quick to sort of concede that and be like, well, you know, okay, maybe he's not the greatest prose writer ever, but there are so many virtues of his world and everything else, and I think he is really a remarkably good storyteller and handles so many of those things very well. He does do it differently from the way that a lot of modern writers write. So, I mean, there's no question that Tolkien is always going to be kind of contrary to the flavor of a lot of modern literature. Yeah, and also there's so many layers in it. I mean, I've read these books every year since I was a kid. Every time you read them, you pick up something more, something in the language or some little joke he's put in there. Like, I was just reading the keeper at the herb house in Gondor yeah. talking about the the history of the word for kingsfoil. Right. And I was thinking, that's Tolkien making a joke about philologists. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> about how tiresome they can be about talking about the origin of some word. Yeah. really want things to happen, so... Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you think of the snippy remark that Aragorn makes afterwards when he's talking to Merry and Pippin about the tobacco, right? And he's like, if you ask the herb master, he will tell you that it used to be called this. And then that sort of rider at the end, and then we'll leave you to meditate on the history of tongues. Yeah, Uh, philologists all over the world are chuckling at that little Exactly, exactly. And that's, as you say, that's kind of self-parody there. Leaving people to meditate on the history of tongues is like what Tolkien did for a living. So yeah, no, that's it is it is really wonderful. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for chatting with me. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's all for today. Thanks again to everyone who called in. I'll do another call-in session soon, and I'd love to hear from you if there's something you'd like to discuss. Keep in mind that you don't need a factual question, per se, in order to call in. If there's just a topic or a theme that you'd like to discuss, I'd enjoy that very much. I'm on vacation with my family right now, but I'll announce another call-in time in a few days. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.